I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 27, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading directly, without comments, from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 4, pages 1003 to 1009, and afterward a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 17. New Ways Ministry, a Study in Subversion. Introduction. New Ways Ministry was founded by Sister Janine Gramick, formerly with the School Sisters of Notre Dame and now with the Sisters of Loretto and Father Robert Nugent of the Society of the Divine Savior, second perhaps only to the Washington, D.C.-based National Homosexual Group Dignity. New Ways has been the most influential of all the homosexual collectives auxiliaries within the Catholic Church. It has served as a critical link between the lesbian feminist covens of female religious orders and the gay priesthood and the secular homosexual collective. This in-depth study of New Ways is the first since Father Weta exposes machinations in the homosexual network in 1982. It is as much an indictment against what passes for religious orders these days as it is against new ways. Both Gramic and Nugent have led a freewheeling existence thanks to the superiors of their respective religious orders, the School Sisters of Notre Dame and the Salvatorians. Both orders have entered have bankrolled new ways operations and aided and abetted his attack on the church for decades. The story of Sister Gramic and Father Nugent and New Ways illuminates the complex interplay between homosexual activists in religious orders and the diocesan priesthood, their superiors and bishops in the United States, and church auxiliaries in Rome, church authorities in Rome. The history of New Ways documents how am churches interlock of homosexual and gay-friendly bishops and its vast bureaucracy at the NCCB slash USCC, USCCB has helped to advance the homosexual collective's ideology and programs and put its resources at the service of the collective. Access to the sources of power within a given institution is an essential tool in the subversion process, and New Ways has never lacked for access to the corridors of power within Amchurch. One of the guiding rules of investigative research is to follow the money trail, but this proved virtually impossible since religious orders are not required to file tax returns. The IRS returns of New Ways and its close affiliate, the Coyote Center were available, however, and they show how the homosexual collective within the church uses a multiplicity of front organizations to attack and undermine the Catholic Church's opposition to homosexuality. The most important thing to remember about New Ways is that despite its religious trappings, it is essentially political, not a religious organization. It is not a ministry in the accepted meaning of the word. Hence, it is, it is referred to as New Ways throughout this book, except for direct quotes. Its primary objectives are political in nature and designed to strengthen the role of the homosexual collective within the Catholic Church. It is only incidentally religious, that is, it uses religion solely for political ends. That is why all New Ways activities must be viewed principally through a political prism, not a religious one. 
In the words of its founders, new ways exist to explore and develop those areas that for many remain formidable obstacles to an acceptance of homosexual identity and expression as politically, morally, potentially morally good and healthy as heterosexuality in the Judeo-Christian scheme, the transformation of Sister Gramic. Janine Gramic was born in 1942 and grew up in a traditional Catholic family in the Philadelphia area. An only child, Gramic recalls that she was very pious and attended daily mass. After a high school graduation, she relinquished a passionate relationship with a young college man and at the age of 18 joined the religious order of the School Sisters of Notre Dame, SSND, a branch of the International French Congregation of Notre Dame. When Gramic entered the convent in 1960, the SSND was by and large still a traditional order. And although the continuous promptings of Pope Pius XII to modernize religious life had begun to stir the waters of revolution ever so gently, by the mid-1960s, however, the order was gone with the wind. The SSND nuns underwent a period of radical renewal comparable to the ill-fated sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary in Los Angeles. The prominent role of the SSND in the building of Woman Church has been well documented by Donna Steichen in Ungodly Rage, The Hidden Face of Catholic Feminism. Steichen catalogs the involvement of SSND nuns in a variety of ecumenical feminist workshops that feature such topics as mother-destroyer archetype Hindu goddess Kali, Wiccan witchcraft, lesbianism, creation spirituality, inclusive liturgical language, reproductive rights, and the sin of sexism. But not to worry, lay Catholics who keep the order financially solvent can be consoled by the fact that the school sisters of Notre Dame raise their own organic food on Earthrise Farm and as part of their Center for Earth Spirituality at the Mankato Motherhouse in Minnesota. Between 1960 and 1985, the number of vowed women religious in the SSND fell worldwide from 11,000 to 8,000. By 2003, the number had plummeted to 4,400. Unfortunately, Sister Gramic was not among the dropouts. In 1968, Sister Gramic received word that her mother was seriously ill and she returned home to Philadelphia with the approval of her religious superior. While on leave, she decided to take advantage of the SSND's continuing teaching education program and enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania as a full-time graduate to begin her doctorate in mathematics education. According to Gramic, in 1971, during home liturgy attended mainly by university students, she reported her first encounter with Dominic Bash, a homosexual male friend who inspired her calling to minister to her gay sisters and brothers. By this time, Gramic, now in her late 20s, was already well indoctrinated into the theology of radicalized feminism and lesbianism. After Gramic returned to Baltimore in 1972 to teach at the College of Notre Dame in Maryland, she helped found Dignity Washington, D.C. One year later, with the help of Father 
Joseph Hughes, a Baltimore diocesan priest, Gramic helped found Dignity Baltimore. The first Mass for the Catholic group was celebrated in the chapel of St. Jerome's Convent, where Janine lived with her four other SSND sisters, all of whom supported the political activities of the homosexual collective. Dignity Baltimore continued to meet at the convent until it secured a Catholic parish to hold its services. Gramic is proud of the fact that she conducted a workshop for lesbians that later inspired the founding of the Conference for Catholic Lesbians. Gramic's actions in helping to establish Dignity Philadelphia, Dignity Washington, D.C., and Dignity Baltimore, and the Lesbian Association indicates the degree to which Gramic was politically radicalized before she founded New Ways. In her essay, Lesbians and the Church, Bridging the Gap, that appeared in the Christian feminist magazine Daughters of Sarah in 1988, Gramic recalls her early contacts with the homosexual community in the Philadelphia area and her work with a sensible and attractive lesbian ex-nun with whom she developed a support group for lesbian and gay Catholics. Gramic states, from lesbian women, I also learned that homophobia can be rooted in personal fears and anxieties about one's own sexuality. In the early years of my ministry, she says, I remember feeling uncomfortable with a woman because I became conscious of my own same-sex attractions. Unless we make friends with our own homosexual passions, we will be imprisoned by them, she concludes. She says society's heterosexual bias and the church's ecclesiastical sexism and its treatment of homosexuals like Dominic as outcasts distressed her. Gramic's leadership positions in the National Coalition of American Nuns, NCAN, the first Catholic organization to affirm the rights of gay and lesbian people, and in the Women's Ordination Conference, WOC, demonstrates her dual commitment to the homosexual collective and the lesbian feminist movement. Sister Janine tells her story. My first gay man that I ever met, I met Dominic at a home mass that was in the days of 70s, and he told me his whole life story, that he left the Catholic Church, he said, because the Catholic Church had nothing to offer him as a gay man. Certainly I felt I was, certainly I felt he was greatly discriminated against, but I also felt that somehow he wasn't normal. That was the attitude that I had because that was what society said to me and that maybe he could change. But after speaking with him and listening to his story and he told me that he had tried and wanted to be heterosexual and couldn't, I realized that stereotype was just that, a stereotype. Lesbian and gay people can't change their orientation. We struck up a good friendship, and that transformed my entire life. Sister Janine Gramick, June 24, 2001, CBC radio interview to live with courage. The impression one would get from reading Gramick's story of her first meeting with Dominic Bash in the 2001 Canadian radio interview is that here was some poor lost soul, a homosexual struggling to find his way home but finding himself constantly rebuffed by the Catholic Church. Gramic never mentions what happened to this young man that she befriended and encouraged to live out his homosexual identity. Permit me to do so. 
Dominic Bass was a native of the greater Philadelphia area. He was four years younger than Gremick. After he graduated from North Carolina High School in 1965, he enrolled as a novice with the fathers of the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales, Wilmington, Philadelphia province, but was eventually dismissed from the seminary. He tried to get into another seminary, possibly Episcopalian, but was also rejected as a candidate for the ministry, presumably because of his homosexuality. Dominic took up hairdressing. By the early 1970s, about the time that Gramic began holding Eucharistic gatherings for Bash and his homosexual friends in the Philadelphia area, Bash was heavily into homosexual politics. He, together with Gramic, helped to organize Dignity Philadelphia, and Bash is recognized today as one of the chapter's founding members and a trailblazer activist for gay rights. In 1991, when the Archdiocese of Philadelphia cracked down on dignity and prohibited the pro-homosexual group from meeting on church property, Dominic Bash and Dignity Philadelphia found a new home at St. Luke and the Epiphany Episcopalian Church in Center City, Philadelphia. That same year, Bash made headlines as the city of brotherly love's most famous diva, he was a master of ceremonies at the third annual coming out block party on Pine Street. He came in drag flaunting a tight black skirt, fishnet stockings, and a tiara. Bash also helped organize a demonstration at the Cathedral Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul, where Cardinal Anthony Bevilacqua was holding his first mass for people with AIDS. Havoc broke loose when one demonstrator, not Bash, dumped condoms on the altar. In response to the AIDS epidemic, Bash, who later contracted the disease, organized an AIDS ministry within Dignity Philadelphia. Sadly, from his seminary days up until his death, Bash insisted that the Catholic Church had never loved him. But Sister Gramic should have known better. She had the opportunity of sharing the gospel message of repentance and conversion of heart with the young man she called her friend. Instead, she confirmed Dominic in his sin. Dominic Bash died of AIDS in January 1993 at the age of 47. Without the last sacraments of the Catholic Church, his ashes are buried in a vault at the Episcopal Church of St. Luke and the Epiphany. Father Nugent and his story. Robert Nugent was born on July 31, 1937, and educated in, North, in Northtown, Pennsylvania. He was ordained a diocesan priest of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia under Archbishop, later Cardinal John J. Kroll, on May 22, 1965. By 1971, Father Nugent was without a parish and serving as a chaplain with the De La Salle Christian Brothers in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. According to Nugent, he was in a period of transition from parish work to an unofficial leave of absence to explore non-parochial ministerial possibilities. In other words, six years after ordination, he decided to leave the diocesan priesthood for a more fluid existence as an order priest. In the meantime, he was busy pursuing graduate studies at Temple and Villanova Universities and doing volunteer work with his good friend and loyal companion, Jack Farnell, who worked at St. John's Hospice in Philadelphia, operated by the Little Brothers of the Good Shepherd. 
It was at St. John's that Nugent said he was inspired to minister to homosexual men and women. That same fall, Nugent said he saw an article in the Philadelphia Bulletin on Sister Janine's homosexual ministry and phoned the nun to offer his services. Soon he found himself providing counseling, confessions, and home liturgies for Dignity Philadelphia. Working cheek by jowl with Nugent to bring the homosexual collective into the church were three other priests, Reverend Paul Morrissey, an Augustinian, Father Myron Judy of the Order of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and Father John Camino, a Norbertine priest. Father Morrissey went on to become a founding director of Communication Ministry, Inc., CMI. Created in 1982, CMI became one of the most important links in the underground homosexual network in the Catholic priesthood and religious life in the United States. Its primary function is to promote an alternative ideology based on that of the homosexual collective for homosexual clergy. In the early 1970s, Nugent became the first priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia to testify in favor of a gay rights bill at the city council hearing hearings. Shortly thereafter, Colonel Kroll showed him the door. Nugent took a formal leave of absence from the diocesan priesthood and never returned. In 1973, Nugent expressed an interest in joining the Society of the Divine Savior and entered the provincial house of the Salvatorians in Milwaukee. His novitiate began on June 15, 1976. By this time, he had relocated to Washington, D.C. to complete his program of religious formation. Once established in the capital region, he, Nugent developed close ties to the National Office of Dignity USA, for whom he prepared a homosexuality worksheet for Catholics. He, was, he also negotiated the terms for, by which Dignity was permitted to hold its worship services on the Georgetown University campus. Nugent professed his first vows as a Salvatorian on June 16, 1977. Why did Nugent pick the Salvatorians? According to Roweda, Nugent needed to find a freer environment that would enable him to work within the homosexual movement. As we saw in Chapter 15, the post-Vatican II informal restructuring of the Society of the Divine Savior opened the order up to large-scale homosexual colonization. In the mid-1970s, when Nugent applied for admission into the Salvatorian order, its gay ministry task force was still active. A 1979 communication from Mr. Edward Freeman, the head of the Morning Star community of Kansas City, Missouri, an experimental homosexual religious community, to Salvatorian Provincial Myron Wagner at the Vocations Office in Milwaukee, reveals a great deal about the homosexual collective that had entrenched itself into the Society of the Divine Savior. As reported by Roweda, Mr. Freeman wanted to draw Father Wagner's attention to the Morning Star community as an alternative for homosexual men and women, chaste and unchaste, who felt drawn to the religious life. Freeman said the constitution for the growing and financially solvent gay community was based on the ecumenical Christian rule of the School Sisters of Notre Dame. Freeman invited Wagner to send one of his priests to visit his community. 
the provincial passed the invitation on to Bob Nugent. There were a number of rank-and-file Salvatorian priests who continued to oppose the lavenderization of their order, but they were rebuffed by some, though not all, of their religious superiors, both in the United States and in Rome. In a handbill distributed at a 1984 vocations conference, Salvatorian priest Father James Buckley, who had been waging a four-year war against Nugent and New Ways, alerted his colleagues to the fact that while at least three archbishops of the United States had repudiated Nugent's homosexual apostolate, nevertheless the provincials of the Salvatorians continued to defend the priest and his pro-homosexual activities. Father Buckley, now a priest to the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, summed up the irony of the situation. Despite the opposition of 43 American Salvatorians, the provincial continues to support Nugent's pro-homosexual activities. Apparently, the rest of the province also supports him or considers the matter too, too trivial to protest. If you want to belong to a religious community that will advance the growing homosexual movement, the Salvatorians are for you. For the record, at least four consecutive Secretaries General of the Salvatorians in the U.S. have permitted Nugent to continue his homosexual apostolate. The Coyote Center, parent of New Ways. Nugent claims that he first contacted Sister Gramic in 1971 in connection with the Philadelphia article on her ministry to homosexuals. Gramic says they met at the Coyote Center after she had moved to Baltimore to teach at Notre Dame College and while she was serving as a chaplain to Dignity. In any case, we do know that while Dignity was the ideological inspiration for new ways, its physical parent was the Coyote Center. The Coyote Center, a million-dollar-plus pro-Marxist, pro-abortion, and pro-homosexual organization, began as a small operation in a third-floor walk-up in Mount Rainier, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C., it was incorporated on July 20, 1976, as a 501c3 tax-deductible, non-profit, benevolent, charitable, educational, and philanthropic enterprise in Prince George's County. Its principal purposes were changed in May 1978 to read, A, to foster and sponsor Christian educational and religious development, and B, to alleviate poverty and to otherwise remedy maldistribution of wealth and power, domestic and foreign. The four incorporators and trustees of the Coyote Center has listed on the Articles of Incorporation are Jesuit William R. Callahan, the founder of Priests for Equality, an organization favoring the ordination of women to the Catholic priesthood. Radical feminist Dolores Dolly Pomerleau, a journalist with a master's in women's studies from George Washington University. Eileen Olson of Call to Action 1976 and Father Robert Nugent, SDS. The address for Nugent on the Articles of Incorporation of the Coyote Center is 68 6808 Trexler Road, Lanham, Maryland, the location of the Divine Savior Seminary that has since closed its doors. This means that in 1976, Nugent, who had not yet made his final vows with the Salvatorians, would have needed permission from his Salvatorian superiors to 
help found the Kyoto Center and to become a co-director. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 3, Man's Response to God, 142. By his revelation, the invisible God, from the fullness of his love, addresses men as his friends and moves among them in order to invite and receive them into his own company. The adequate response to this invitation is faith. 143. By faith, man completely submits his intellect and his will to God. With his whole being, man gives his assent to God, the revealer. Sacred scripture calls this human response to God, the author of revelation, the obedience of faith. Article 1, I believe. 1. The obedience of faith. 144. To obey from the Latin ob odori, to hear and or listen to, in faith is to submit freely to the word that has been heard because its truth is guaranteed by God, who is truth itself. Abraham is the un is the model of such obedience offered to us by sacred scripture. The Virgin Mary is its most perfect embodiment. Abraham, father of all who believe, 145. The letter to the Hebrews in its great eulogy of the faith of Israel's ancestors lays special emphasis on Abraham's faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was to go. By faith he lived as a stranger and pilgrim in the promised land. By faith Sarah was given to concede the son of the promise, and by faith Abraham offered his only son in sacrifice. 146. Abraham thus fulfills the definition of faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abraham believed God and is reckoned to him as righteousness. Because he was strong in his faith, Abraham became the father of all who believe. 147. The Old Testament is rich in witnesses to this faith. The letter to the Hebrews proclaims its eulogy of the exemplary faith of the ancestors who received divine approval. Yet God had foreseen something better for us, the grace of believing in his son Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Mary, blessed is she who believed. 148. The Virgin Mary most perfectly embodies the obedience of faith. By faith, Mary welcomes the tidings and promise brought by the angel Gabriel, believing that with God nothing would be impossible, and so giving her assent. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Elizabeth greeted her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It is for this faith that all generations have called Mary blessed. 149. Throughout her life and until her last ordeal, when Jesus, her son, died on the cross, Mary's faith never wavered. She never ceased to believe in the fulfillment of God's word. And so the church venerates in Mary the purest realization of faith. 2. I know whom I have believed, to believe in God alone. 150. Faith is first of all a personal adherence of man to God. At the same time and inseparably, it is a free assent to the whole truth that God has revealed. 
In his personal adherence to God and assent to his truth, Christian faith differs from our faith in any human person. It is right and just to entrust oneself wholly to God and to believe absolutely what he says. It would be futile and false to place such faith in a creature, to believe in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 151. For a Christian believing in God cannot be separated from believing in the one he sent, his beloved Son, in whom the Father is well pleased. God tells us to listen to him. The Lord himself said to his disciples, Believe in God, believe also in me. We can believe in Jesus Christ because he is himself God. The Word made flesh. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Because he has seen the Father, Jesus Christ is the only one who knows him and can reveal him. To believe in the Holy Spirit. 152. One cannot believe in Jesus Christ without sharing in his spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals to men who Jesus is. For no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, who searches everything, even the depths of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Only God knows God completely. We believe in the Holy Spirit because he is God. The church never ceases to proclaim our faith in one only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three, the characteristics of faith. Faith is a grace, 153. When St. Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus declared to him that this revelation did not come from flesh and blood, but from my Father who is in heaven. Faith is a gift of God, a supernatural virtue infused by him. Before this faith can be exercised, man must have the grace of God to move and assist him. He must have the interior helps of the Holy Spirit who moves the heart and converts it to God, who opens the eyes of the mind and makes it easy for all to accept and believe the truth. Faith is a human act, 154. Believing is possible only by grace and the interior helps of the Holy Spirit, but it is no less true that believing is an authentically human act. Trusting in God and cleaving to the truth, he has revealed our contrary, neither to human freedom nor to human reason. Even in human relations, it is not contrary to our dignity to believe what other persons tell us about themselves and their intentions, or to trust their promises. For example, when a man and a woman marry, to share a communion of life with one another. If this is so, still less is it contrary to our dignity to yield by faith the full submission of intellect and will to God who reveals, and to share in, in an interior an interior communion with him. 155. In faith, the human intellect and will cooperate with divine grace. Believing is an act of the intellect, assenting to the divine truth by command of the will moved by God through grace. Faith and understanding. 156. What moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear as true and intelligible in the light of our natural reason, we believe because of the authority of God himself, who reveals them, who can neither deceive nor be deceived, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with reason. God willed that eternal, external proofs of his revelation should be joined to the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. Thus the miracles of Christ and the saints, prophecies, 
the Church's growth in holiness and her fruitfulness and stability are the most certain signs of divine revelation, adapted to the intelligence of all. They are motives of credibility, motiva credibilitatis, which show that the ascent of faith is by no means a blind impulse of the mind. 157. Faith is certain. It is more certain than all human knowledge because it is founded on the very word of God who cannot lie. To be sure, revealed truths can seem obscure to human reason and experience, but the certainty that the divine light gives is greater than that which the light of natural reason gives. Ten thousand difficulties do not make one doubt. 158. Faith seeks understanding. It is intrinsic to faith that a believer desires to know better the one in whom he has put his faith and to understand better what he has revealed. A more penetrating knowledge will in turn call forth a greater faith, increasingly set afire by love. The grace of faith opens the eyes of your hearts to a lively understanding of the contents of revelation, that is, of the totality of God's plan and the mysteries of faith, of their connection with each other and with Christ, the center of the revealed ministry, the revealed mystery. The same Holy Spirit constantly perfects faith by his gifts, so that revelation may be more and more profoundly understood. And the words of St. Augustine, I believe in order to understand, and I understand the better to believe. 159. Faith and Science. Though faith is above reason, there can never be any real discrepancy between faith and reason, since the same God who reveals mysteries and infuses faith has bestowed the light of reason on the human mind. God cannot, desi- cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever contradict truth. Consequently, methodical research in all branches of knowledge, provided it is carried out in a truly scientific manner and does not override moral laws, can never conflict with the faith, because the things of the world and the things of faith derive from the same God. The humble and persevering investigator of the secrets of nature is being led, as it were, by the hand of God in spite of himself, for it is God, the observer of all things, who made them what they are. And that's the end of my readings from uh, the right of sodomy and the catechism and no comments. So I'll end my podcast here. Uh, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.